0: The last time we were in Acts, which seems a really long time ago, and I don't know why, it was just Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday that we were not, but it seemed like a long time ago, probably because I didn't read it since then. Paul and Barnabas had been commissioned by the Holy Spirit, and we need to make sure that we understand that, that the church did not select Paul and Barnabas to go out uh, on their first missionary journey. But instead, the Holy Spirit told, commissioned Paul and Barnabas for the work they were to do and they were released by the church in Antioch for that work that the Spirit had called them to do. The last line of the last time we read this was Acts 13 uh, verse 4 and it ended with, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, that's easy for you to say, Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now the city of Antioch, uh, where the church was, was located 20 miles up the Orontes River, uh, away from the sea coast. Seleucia, Uh, The seaport for the area was located um, 16 miles downriver from uh, Antioch, so it was still 5 miles inland. Cyprus, uh, you're getting your your geography lesson today, Cyprus was 60 miles not 24 miles across, 60 miles across the sea to the west of Syria. It was close enough that on this A clear day, just like Santa Catalina Island, you could see it on the horizon out there. So it was part of the known world of the Near East. They they could see it from where they were. Cyprus was of great importance in the Near East uh, from seemingly all of antiquity. It's mentioned in Genesis ten. Genesis 10 says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now the sons represent, or settled in areas, some of which we know to this day. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riboth and Togerma, The sons of Javan. Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastline peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. And it goes on one more, just so you see where I'm going with this. The sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. You'll notice that the names of the grandsons of Noah, like I said, are all place uh, are often place names of places we now not only recognize, uh, like Megon, Cush, Ashkenaz. We have the Ashkenazis, uh, Tarshish, which is where Paul, uh, Saul of Tarshish, uh, Tarsus was from. Uh, we have some names that we recognize even today, Egypt, for one. Uh, And we know Canaan very well. In verse 4 we read the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. Kittim was the name for the island of Cyprus. uh, And it was the uh, possession of that grandson of Noah who was named Kittim. Situated as close as it was to Syria, And even closer to modern-day Turkey, up to uh, Tarsus, very close to the mainland of Turkey, it was a major sea trade area uh, annexed by Rome in 60 AD, and it became its own province in 27 BC. So it was a really important trading area. Now today we are covering Acts 13, 5 through 12, uh, and I'll go ahead and read that, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was, the, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit, So, that's a little bit to look at today. Verse 5 says, When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Salamis was one of the three large cities in Cyprus. Paul only visited two of them. One he stayed away from, and it is suspected that he stayed away from a low-lying marshy area because uh, they think that he had malaria at the time. So he stayed to the highlands where it was drier and warmer. Not in the Bible. I'm just throwing that out. That That's what they, why they think he stayed away from the third town. Until an earthquake leveled it, Salamis was the capital of Cyprus. And, I, and we've seen regular... Uh, not regular. We have seen recently several strong earthquakes in this same general area, Syria basically from Antioch up through Tarsus in Turkey nowadays. We just had two or three of them, which did a great deal of damage. So, Salamis was now rebuilt, but it was uh, only the seat of the eastern part of the government. When they rebuilt it, the Romans moved the new capital uh, to Paphos, on the other side of the island. Or, actually, they moved it to New Paphos, because Old Paphos was leveled also. When they rebuilt Paphos as new Paphos, like 10 miles away from the previous city of Paphos, they built it to accommodate the Roman government. Paul here establishes what would become standard on his missionary journeys. Upon arriving in Salamis, it says they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues. As Paul said in his letter to the uh, church in Rome in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, in these early days of the Christian church, Christians were still considered Jews first. And just being a sect of the Jews, like Messianic Jews today... So it was natural for Paul and Barnabas to go preach to familiar people first in a familiar setting. But God-fearing Gentiles were also in attendance in the synagogue, and we've seen that throughout the book of Acts, that, that the Greeks were really interested in foreign religions. And a number of them, a large number of them, when encountering the God of the Jews of the Hebrews, they were drawn to them. So there are a number of God, which is called God fearing Gentiles, or just God fearers, in the synagogues to listen to what is taught. And Paul was to find that they um, have been possibly even more receptive to the message of Christianity than the Jews themselves. Salamis, though mainly Gentile, still had a large enough Jewish population that it needed more than one synagogue. Paul and Barnabas had plenty of opportunities to preach the gospel. Another thing, a failing of the scriptures, as I like to say. No, things I'd like to know that are not covered. How long did they stay in Salamis? We don't know. Verse 5 says... And they had John to attend them. Now John here is John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, and he was the cousin of Barnabas. The ESV says that Mark was there to attend them. Other versions say John was their assistant or their helper. The King James Version says he was their minister, which is closer to the meaning of the word. And how Luke himself translated it in Luke 4 as a synagogue attendant or Luke 1-2 where it translated minister of the word. Now F.F. Uh, F. Bruce who a famous old time commentator died probably back in the 90s says that Mark was probably along because of his personal first hand knowledge and testimony of certain important phases in Jesus last life particularly the, Su- the last supper which took place in his family home, the arrest, and we have him running away, losing his robe uh, uh, instead of being seized, Um, the trial and crucifixion of the Lord, and Jesus' resurrection. John Mark, uh, Saul wasn't there, or Paul now, wasn't there. Barnabas, who was from uh, Cyprus himself, probably was not there. They had John Mark there because he had eyewitness testimony to all that went on there. Verse 6 says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And once again, Cyprus how long did they preach through Cyprus? I don't know. Cyprus was 100 miles long, 60 miles wide. That's 6,000 square miles of territory to cover. Numerous towns and cities. And it says when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos. Remember, Barnabas was, grew up on Cyprus. He probably wanted to cover as many places as he could see. We have no idea how long this took, but it was by foot. Not only do we not know how long it took, we do not know where they preached in the countryside. So, when verse 6 says, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Patmos, uh, they had uh, landed finally on more or less the east coast They had landed on the east coast of Salamis, and now they have walked all the way to the west coast at Paphos. When they get to Paphos, boy, I'm really getting through this today. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. There's irony, of course, in the name of the magician they came across there, Bar-Jesus. You look at them, Bar-Jesus. Son of Jesus is what it translates to. Or, in Hebrew, it's son of Joshua. um, Which, Joshua itself means um, salvation, God saves. So, it's the son of salvation, uh, son of Joshua, Bar-Jesus was, as it says, a magician, but not the card-trick, saw-the-girl-in-the-trunk kind, you know, in-half kind of magician. Uh, if he was taking up where the Persian mag- magi left off, Bar-Jesus was dabbling in astrology. Because that, people at that time looked at the stars a lot. And uh, it is claimed that God gave signs in the stars so there was a reason to be looking there. Bar Jesus is further described as a Jewish false prophet. Now, he was probably not a false prophet in the predict the future sense of the word. He was a false prophet in false teacher sense. He was leading the people astray either with his astrology or with his teaching on various Jewish top topics. Pathos was already a hotbed of pagan worship, there uh, there was a center of worship for Aphrodite Venus. Actually, they had another name, which I couldn't find when I went back to look for it. Of Aphrodite Venus on Paphos, in Paphos's language, they had another name, but that's what it was. People came not just from all over Cyprus. But from surrounding countries, for a three-day spring festival called Aphrodisia, okay? Love it. Well, what else would you call a festival for Aphrodite? But Aphrodisia, which also featured the temple of prostitutes at the temple for Aphrodite, the magician Bar Jesus just added to the spiritual confusion already to be found in Cyprus. Verse 7 says, He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, we don't know. Luke says he was a man of intelligence. And was he a man of intelligence in Luke's eyes because he summoned Paul and Barnabas to speak to him? You know, uh, Proverbs talks about the beginning of wisdom Is the fear of the Lord? And so, is that why Luke was saying he was intelligent? But then again, when we look at various other Roman governors, even Pontius Pilate showed wisdom and restraint in dealing with Jesus before he gave in to the mob. Uh, We see that the Roman governors generally did not cause problems, they probably had great wisdom and great tact in dealing with things. It also says that he was a pro A pro is the term for a Roman governor for a territory that does not require the presence of Roman soldiers. There was a, you were a Tetrarch, for instance, if you had Roman soldiers on your land, as all of Judea did, divided into three areas with three Roman governors and soldiers in each one of them. Cyprus was a calm place. It had no Roman soldiers. It got along with a pro I do not know this, uh, but I would think it was like a consular official of ours in other co- in friendly countries. Luke calls, um, well, whichever it was, a pro was a wise man to look into a new religious movement, a new teaching from stranger who came to his jurisdiction, uh, besides which, as an intelligent Roman governor, Paulus was no doubt had a keen interest, uh, like most Greco-Romans, in new philosophies and religious beliefs. This was uh, when I've taught on uh, the city of Corinth in the book of Corinthians. This was their hobby in, in the Greek lands of Corinth. The hobby was to, you sort of collected new philosophers, new religions. Remember, it was the Christians who were thought to be uh, antisocial because they would not adopt the gods of Rome because Rome was glad to adopt Yahweh, Jehovah, as one of their gods. Fits right in with the rest to them. But the Christians were considered antisocial because they would not Worship the false gods of the uh, Greeks and the Romans. So, Sergius Paulus wants to investigate this new teaching that's going around and he invites Paul and Barnabas showing an interest in their preaching and summon them to his capital. Verse 8 says, But, Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. One thing to note here is Luke, who really didn't speak all of these languages himself, Elimus was his name in Greek, but it had nothing to do with the translation of what his name meant, Bar-Jesus. What it actually meant was magician in Semitic, is Translated Elimas in Greek. Elimas, or, or, or Bar Jesus, whichever you want to call him, has assumed to himself the authority to speak for the Jews of Paphos to keep the proconsul from the teaching of Paul and Barnabas about the Jewish Messiah. He has assumed this duty to keep Sergius Paulus away. From Christianity. Now, in reality, his opposition was not about Judaism versus Christianity, but it was solely to keep Elamis standing with the pro council from eroding. He didn't want anybody else coming between his Jewish authority towards the Roman governor, and now Paul and Barnabas showing up with this exciting new teaching. Coming between that. It was purely selfish on the part of the sorcerer. Verse 9a says, But Saul, who is also called Paul, and this is a turning point in Christian history. Uh, here for the very first time, Saul of Tarsus is called Paul. And here, Paul is for the last time in Scripture called Saul, except for when later on he's describing his own life and refers to himself as Saul. So all of verse 9 through 10 reads But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now Paul really unloads on Elimus here. He does a really nice job. As though he were rebuking Satan himself, he calls him, you son of a devil. And remember that when Jesus was called the son of God, that is likening. Jesus to God, which is why they picked up stones to stone Jesus, calling him, uh, you son of the devil, he's saying, you're the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, which is also a description of Satan, full of deceit and villainy, certainly who is more deceitful and villainous than the father of lies. Finally, Paul says, Elimus is making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. He is not just anti-Christ. He is, uh, the anti-John the Baptist here. Remember in, um, in Mark, I believe it was, he was uh, John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice, crying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And here Paul accuses Elimus that he is making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Verse 11 says, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. It is a scene very reminiscent of Saul of Tarsus' own conversion on the road to Damascus. Okay? But where Paul thought he was doing God's work. And Paul honestly did, or Saul back then, honestly thought he was doing the work of God and, and standing up for the teaching of the Jews, of the of the priests and the scribes, Elimus was opposing Christianity not in defense of Judaism, but to protect his own status in the court of Sergius Paulus. Note also, and I didn't see anybody commenting on this, that while Paul was blinded by a dazzling light, okay, Elimus was plunged into darkness and mist. Now, I'm just throwing that out. I'm saying... I'm saying one was looking for an enlightenment, Paul. He was searching to do the will of God. Elimas was not searching to do the will of God, and he is plunged into darkness of the abyss of unbelief. In both cases, the two men needed to have people lead them by the hand in their time of sightlessness. In the case of Saul, God had prepared a Christian, Ananias, Ananias of Damascus beforehand to come and be there when Paul went blind uh, to go to the house and, and restore his sight with the Elias the sorcerer we are not told if he ever found someone to lead him by the hand it leaves us saying he was searched, seeking about he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand did he find that person to lead him Did he find somebody to lead him out of the darkness? Because this is the last we hear of Bar-Jesus or Elimus the sorcerer. We don't know if he ever found somebody to lead him out of the world, the darkness of the world he created for himself. Verse 12 concludes, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished At the teaching of the Lord. Lord. Now of interest here is he saw what had occurred, but it was the teaching that astonished him. And he believed because of the teaching and not of the negative miracle. And by the way, negative miracles are really, in the New Testament, this is one of three. Uh, They are not a common event. When God uses a negative miracle, he is saying something profound that he will use his own to strike down a person in a way. It says he believed out of astonishment of the teaching of the Lord. Now, belief does not always end in a sincere conversion of a person. In fact, belief is often the first step. You have to then make other choices uh, to follow God. Scripture says that demons believe and shudder. I am certain that Satan believes in Jesus and for the life of me, I don't know why Satan continues fighting. Because he believes. He knows who Jesus was. And maybe it's just because of his deceit and villainy as it says, that he continues on. He continues opposing God just because he is the... What did it say? Because uh, he is the devil, the enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. That describes Satan also perfectly. So, did the pro-council, Sergius Paulus, convert... Okay, I always like these questions. I like to know these answers to these things because um, Scripture does not tell us, um, but secular and extra-biblical sources say that Paulus became a true Christian. Uh, Sir Gordon Ramsay, famous, probably the most famous archaeologist, at least of the 19th century, and biblical archaeologist. He argued from other literary sources that the proconsul's daughter, herself named Sergia not Sergius, but Sergia, the feminine name, Sergia Paulus, and her son, Gaius Caristanus Fronto, who, by the way, became the first citizen of the city in Antioch to enter the Roman Senate, so he was somebody of note. Other sources say that they were both Christians. So was Sergius Paulus? I leave it to you, but it it leans that direction. Have you ever wondered... I wondered today. Have you ever wondered how all of these early Christians could devote the rest of their life to the misery of trying to convert the world? I mean... I wonder about it today. You, you all know that uh, my my life verse is please don't send me to Africa. Um, I do not want to do that. Okay, okay, it's not my life verse, but it it, it almost could be. Why did Paul and Barnabas and the other apostles who uh, and disciples of Jesus uh, down to this very day go out into a hostile world to teach of Jesus and the kingdom of God? to bring goodness and truth to a fallen world, what drove them to do it? Because, you know, those who want to argue that Jesus was not resurrected and was not God will say, well, they just did it for their own personal gain. Well, really, what personal gain would that have been? It would have been a far more comfortable existence for them to stay home in their warm houses sleeping on a familiar bed but they were christians christ had secured for them their salvation they didn't have to go out except for that pesky great commission thing that 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 pops up here but they wanted to bring sight to a blind world, God's light into a world of darkness, into the world that that Elimus would never escape from. Christianity entered a desperately wicked world and brought about changes never even thought of by ancient cultures. I've spoken before of how the earliest Christians rescued babies on Roman dung heaps, to raise as their own, starting the first orphanages, or how they took care of the elderly and sick, establishing hospitals for those who were formerly left to fend for themselves by their own people. Christians did even more for ancient societies by, the, by promulgating the teachings of Jesus. Education was encouraged. Uh, nearly all the famous old universities of the 1,000 through 2,000 years. Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Princeton, and many more were founded as institutions of Christian teaching. True forgiveness, somebody I was reading today said, true forgiveness was the most startling thing that Jesus ever introduced because true forgiveness was not known in the ancient world. It is purely a Christian thought. Christians brought a previously unknown virtue of humility to the world. Remember Jesus said blessed are the meek. He washed his disciples feet to show them that to be a servant, to be great in God's kingdom was to be a servant of all. I mean Plutarch wrote a book called How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. Okay. This is This is the ancient thinking, how to praise yourself inoffensively, you know? Whereas Jesus introduced true humility to the world. Christians were the first to bring women into their society as equals, with God allowing them to be the first witnesses of the resurrection, among any number of other things. Uh, Priscilla, was instrumental with Aquila of instructing Paul, who would go on to change the world with the conversion of the Gentile nations. The list of how Jesus and Christianity have changed the world is endless. Somebody said that the world today is not recognizable if you removed Christianity to people. Our world is so, yeah. and this sounds funny, our world is so thoroughly influenced by Christianity that a return to what it was like before would shock the world. And yet the world we live in today is still a hopelessly fallen world, just like it was in the time of Barnabas and Paul. And this will not change until the Lord returns to restore creation. I mean, that's why, did you notice that there was no ending date on the Great Commission? Jesus didn't say go out and make disciples of all nations for, you know, 20 years. It was sort of open-ended here. For this reason, Christians still go out into a world full of darkness, risking their lives to bring God's comfort to those oppressed by the evil one. I'll use our friend Ryan Coher as a closing example. Uh, Knowing full well for his entire life he wanted to fly for Mission Aviation Fellowship. That's all he ever wanted to do. He wanted to do God's work. A great deal of work. I don't know if you know this, but if you fly for Mission Aviation Fellowship, you have to be a fully uh, licensed Airframe and power plant mechanic. It means that you can do anything. Our uh, friend Nathan, who is missing today, is an A&P, does all the work on his own airplanes, plus is a licensed pilot. And yet, only wanting to do good, he spent the last four months sleeping on the floor of a bug-infested African prison. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is no uh, good turn goes unpunished all he wanted to do was fly supplies to orphanages and to people in trouble and he got four months in solitary confinement sitting, sleeping without a trial, sleeping on a floor to the point that they were having to get special permission to bring him ointment to heal his skin from the bites this is what Christians, missionaries, even today, are doing, much as, you know, Paul gives a long list later on of what he suffered on his missionary journeys. And I understand uh, that um, Orion did not go through those things. Paul suffered in extreme, but suffer in his own way, he did. All our missionaries doing are trying to do is serve both God and man even to this day. But the darkness of this world punishes them anyway, as it did Paul and the apostles and many of the disciples and countless missionaries for 2,000 years and counting. And yet the great command, commission has not been repealed. And the steps Paul and Barnabas took across endless roads in the Near East have been constantly retraced by Christians and will be trod again in the future by Christians yet to live by following the directions of their Lord. The work goes on till the Lord returns. Paul and Barnabas started it. We know people doing it now. Maybe our grandchildren will do it in the future and they do it for the love of people and the love of Jesus let's close in prayer Lord I do pray for those carrying out your work in, in bad circumstances those who are giving their health and sometimes their lives for your work you called them to this work you'll keep them strong and I just pray Lord that You would be with them every step of the way as you were with Paul and Barnabas after calling them personally into your service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.